Second Thessalonians chapter three, starting with the sixth verse. And when you have it, please stand. Hear ye the word of the Lord. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some of you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. God's word for God's people and God's people said amen. amen. You may be seated. So I have a device at my house that certain people have also taken a liking to. I'm not the first to have it, but uh, I've been around some engineers that have had it and they've uh, put it on the top of their consoles, their mixing boards when they were uh, looking because engineering is a tough job. And so what they had was an easy button and you'd press the button. That was easy. And it would say that was easy. But that's all it did. It didn't do anything else. That was all it did. But this uh, easy button got popular because there was a company called Staples where you sold off, you could purchase office supplies and they were trying to boost their online sales. And so they had this gimmick that was set up and oh, you need paper, oh, you need printer ink, oh, you need cartridges, oh, you need pens, pencils, whatever, filing cabinets. They would just come in and they would push this easy button and everything they needed would show up. No work involved. And this was just a gimmick because it was a commercial. It wasn't real life, but people got so enamored with this easy button that they had to make an easy button, a real live easy button, and sell it. So it was supposed to be just a visual prop, but it ended up garnering 1.5 million being sold by the end of 2006. And the word easy, it was so popular that they had to translate the easy button into a bunch of different languages so everybody else could, could sell. And, and, and it's no wonder that something like that would be popular. Because there's a lot of things we wish were as simple as pushing a button. 
there are a lot of things that we could wish in our lives that we could solve just by pressing a button and everything would be fixed. And because things are not as easy as pushing a button, it gets kind of hard sometimes to keep doing what is right. And it's hard to, be, to, to remain motivated. Your motivation, it runs hot and cold. There are times when we feel all fired up like we can take over the world. And there are other times when we don't feel like getting out of bed. There are times when we feel like everything is going our way. Everything is going the exact way that we want it. And there are other times it feels like we can't do anything right. Our efforts are changing and, and, and we sometimes lose momentum. If only we could keep ourselves motivated over and over again, how much better would we be? And Thessalonians is experiencing that kind of matter. You have First and Second Thessalonians. And First Thessalonians is written to a church that is anxious. There are a bunch of people who have died after Jesus, but before Jesus was coming back. And so they were anxious about him. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul lets them know that the final resurrection is near. And uses the, they, the theologians would use a big $5 word, eschatological, there. When you are worried about the things of the end, a big old $5 word about what's going to happen in the ending. And they're worried in his first letter, and so he's encouraging them. He's implying that the Lord is coming. Although he's not here yet, but the Lord is coming, and so they need to keep awake. And then we have Second Thessalonians come around because what has happened at this church is they're waiting on the Lord to come back. And so all they're doing is keeping awake, but not doing anything else. Second Thessalonians is here to remind the church that there are many events that need to happen before Jesus comes back. So they're not just supposed to sit on their hind parts, not supposed to sit on their status as Christians. There is work to be done. Zig Ziglar said that people often say that motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing. That's why we recommend it daily. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we do over and over and over again because we know just one time is not good enough. But yet and still, when we apply different things to spiritual matters, we seem to think that it's a push button, one thing, one time, just do it one time, God fix it, and that's all. We don't need to do anything else. And I would submit to you that because we have been idle, because we have not been putting our hand consistently to the plow, because we have not been continuously working, we have let some things go through. I'm I'm an avid sports fan, and I hear people always trying to compare LeBron James to Michael Jordan. And as far as I'm concerned, yes, LeBron James has a lot of talent. Yes, LeBron James is able to do things athletically that other athletes, other professional world-class athletes are not able to do, but to me, he is not in Michael Jordan's category. It doesn't matter how many times he goes to the finals, I I am reminded that Michael Jordan won every finals he went to. 
I am reminded that Michael Jordan doesn't know what a game seven looks like in the NBA finals because he made his way through. And so when I look at it and the difference between them, they're both great athletes in their own right. But the difference between a Michael Jordan and a LeBron James is Michael Jordan didn't take his foot off the gas. They, Michael Jordan had what was called that killer instinct. So much so that he continued to press and, and there, there, he, he might want some counseling. But even by the time he got to the NBA Hall of Fame. He flew the man out that was picked for the freshman team over him. Michael Jordan tried out for the basketball team when he was a freshman and didn't make it. The high school coach told him he was not good enough. So he had this inner drive and kept pressing and kept pushing and and went all the way to the Hall of Fame and then brought the coach and the guy that was picked over him to his Hall of Fame so he could put it in their face. I'm not, I I don't know if I would spend that much money in one of the greatest moments of my life to tell somebody I told you so, but the point is, the difference between a LeBron James and the difference between a LeBron James and a Michael Jordan is that he didn't rest on his laurels. You never saw Michael Jordan give up. Michael Jordan tried and tried and tried until he could not try anymore. He would not be idle. He did not rest on his laurels. He kept working. We've been idle as a people, as a body of believers. We've been idle in our schools. We've been idle in the community. We've been idle in our homes. We've been idle in politics. Uh Uh-oh. Resting on the laurels is what brought the reprimand. This is nothing new. This has been done before we had the Emancipation Proclamation and Reconstruction and the reprimand and then we got idle. And so as we got idle, the response was Jim Crow. And then we got back on the ball and started having the Civil Rights Movement. And then we got idle and things like the Tea Party showed up. But even before the Tea Party, after the response to the Civil Rights Movement was a law and order candidate by the name of Richard Nixon. And then we got back on the ball and elected the first African-American president. But we got idle. And the idle response to that was the Tea Party. And when the Tea Party wasn't enough, we elected somebody who's not qualified. No political experience whatsoever. First president to ever get the office and never release his tax returns or his health records. We have no idea what's going on and they're going to transfer over the nuclear coals to him because we got idle. There were those who felt like, well, well, I don't really care for either one of these candidates, so I'm not going to vote at all. And so we got idle. And we got idle because we've allowed one small group to control the narrative. We've allowed one small group to control the narrative of what is morality and what what kind of political party would God be interested in. And so this one small group has controlled the narrative and they've been focused on and making it think like the only thing that Christians should be concerned about is prayer in school and fighting uh, uh, abortion and fighting same-sex marriage and being overly concerned about who goes into what bathroom. Uh, 
And because that has become the quote-unquote party rather of morality, because we have been idle, we've missed that the Bible talks a whole lot more about things other than just those four things. The Bible talks more, the Bible talks about more than just prayer and school and same-sex marriage and these kind of things. They, they talk about other things. We talk about how life is precious. Yes, life is precious. But are you really pro-life if you don't want the, the teenage pregnant teen to abort their teen, but when that teen grows up and becomes Muslim, you have a problem with it? Are you really pro-life then? Are you really pro-life if that, teen, if that baby grows up and becomes African-American in the wrong neighborhood? Are you really pro-life if you want so many guns so that you can shoot them when you are in fear for your life, when they're just trying to go get Skittles and an Arizona tea during a basketball game? Are you really pro-life? The Bible does talk about these things, but you know what it also talks about? It talks about feeding the hungry, clothing the naked. Binding up the wounds of the afflicted. When I was hungry, you fed me. The Bible talks about in Isaiah, woe to those who legislate amongst ki- against kids. So are we really the party? Is that really rather the party of morality? If on one end you're talking about in God we trust, but you want to pull all the federal funding out of schools that you most possibly can. So that you can fund the prisons private prisons are we really because we've gotten idle they've come up with a formula to know when you're going to jail if you can't read at grade level by third grade they've already built a jail cell for you and if by the time you get to seventh grade if your daddy ain't in the house and you fail in math and science they've really already built a jail for you We've allowed ourselves to be idle. And because we've allowed ourselves to be idle, we've reaped the benefits. We brought this upon ourselves. But even though we've brought this upon ourselves, God is still on the throne. God is not a Democrat. God is not a Republican. God is not a Libertarian. God is not a Green Party candidate. God is God. And so we've been idle and we've allowed different things to change what's going on. And so the the people in Thessalonians that that Paul is writing to, they've allowed themselves to be idle. There were some people, they called them synods. And they basically, we we didn't have an, an economy during that time like we have now. You had to be able to produce something in order to feed and clothe your family. It was an agricultural society, so the money, got, the money got around based on you being able to build or make something. These days, I love technology, but you can go into a bunch of stuff and get paid and not actually build anything. You don't actually have to create things. I don't create anything at my job. I punch a bunch of keys into a computer, and every now and then I, I, I plug and unplug a cable. But for the most part, I did not make it. I did not create it from scratch. It was already provided for me, and I make it work. And so this, this economy here, you have people who are, who are mooching off of this. They've take, they looked at the people who were making things and decided, I'm going to live off of them. I am going to work 
I'm not going to work rather at all. I'm going to let somebody else work and I will get fed. And that's why Paul told them, this is the rule. Those who do not work should not eat. So Paul is reprimanding them. Let the church say reprimand. There are some lazy people, there are some gossipers, and there are some disobedient people. The lazy people should work hard. He tells them to work hard in, uh, through six, verses 6 through 10. And then he tells them, the gossipers, that they need to mind their own business and do good. They're not busy at work, but busy bodies. They're without any kind of business of their own, so they attend to the business of others. I am in a job that is immersed in safety culture. They always try to figure out the safest way to get something done. So much so that they have created a culture of busy bodies. There are some people who are on the job that aren't able to function well in their day-to-day -day function. Whatever they were paid for to do, they don't necessarily do. But what they are good at is enforcing this safety culture. And so they can go around and point out hazards. Oh, there's a nail sticking up in this table. We need to get this nail removed. Somebody might slice their hand on it. Oh, there's a cord sticking out that's not properly taped down. We need to tape that down so there's a hazard. Somebody could trip and fall and bust their head. And all the time that they're doing this, the actual job that they were hired to do is not getting done. But since we track safety metrics, they look like all-stars because they're enforcing the culture. And that's what I think about when I think about not being busy, but busy bodies. Anybody can walk around and point out how something's dangerous. We have candles in front of here. That's a flame hazard. We have this podium here. I could trip over it. We've got electricity around. I could make up all day something to do, just like some of us do in the church. We can think about a whole bunch of reasons why we won't want to go out and feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and bind up the wounds of the afflicted. But we can plan an anniversary. We can plan a church anniversary. We can plan a pastor's anniversary. We can have a bunch of celebrations and all these different days going on. You'll spend 10 days arguing about what's going to be on the program and what's in order. But are we affecting the community? Not doing busy work, but being busy bodies. And the disobedient, he flat out says, we need to stay away from them. Take note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. I've heard time and time again, they say that you are your five, the average of your five closest people you hang around. If everybody you hang around ain't doing nothing, well, guess what? You ain't going to be doing nothing. If you're the smartest person, if you're the most talented person in your circle, you probably need a new circle. We should always be learning. We should always be growing. Things that are not growing die. And so we got to stay away from those. And then he says, when, when he's got the reprimand and those people receive the reprimand, he doesn't just reprimand them, amen? He doesn't just beat up on them and tell them the truth in love and then walk away and leave it. He, he goes on to tell us a solution. 
It's real easy to talk about the problem, but when it's time to talk about the solution, people get quiet. And so he takes some steps to get, deal with them, and he says to take special note in verse 14 of anyone who does not obey our instruction, do not associate them, yet do not regard with them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. We can't just talk about the people in the wrong. We got to go show them how to be right. And we got to show them by building relationships with them. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. And so if you're just walking up on people and constantly telling them what's wrong and you ain't spending time building a relationship with them, it's going to go in one ear and out the other. And so we have to identify them. And we have to um, uh, admonish them. And then we have to treat them with love and care. Love God and love people. I'm learning I really only have one or two sermons. I may start in one place and I may end up in a whole bunch of other places. But when it boils down to it, we have to be willing to love God and love people. And if we love God and love people, we'll be able to work better. We'll be able to accomplish more. We'll be able to do the things that God set out for us to do. And it doesn't matter how hard it gets. We ought not be able to grow weary in where we're doing. Because it doesn't matter what's going on on the outside. As long as we have God on the inside of us, we should be able to keep moving. The word of God is everlasting to everlasting. He gives power to the faint, and to them who have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth will stumble and fail. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, run and not get weary, walk and not faint. And so when I think that I am losing hope, I look to my daily motivation, and I know that God will give me some wings to fly through it. When I look, when it feels like it's not any hope, I'll be able to run and not get weary. And if I can't run, I'll be able to walk it out. And I'll walk and not faint. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open and we invite you to come.